and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest and friend of more than 15 years, Mason Sallet, who is the Chief Talent Officer at Dynasty. Mason has had a long and illustrious career spanning more than 30 years in the financial services industry and has worked at institutions such as TD, Bank Leumi, HSBC, and Citi. During his career, Mason has hired some of the most influential members of the hedge fund, private equity, and financial services community. Mason and I will talk today about leadership, talent, coaching, and employee morale. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer with Dynasty Financial Partners. And today, I'm joined by a very, very special guest, longtime friend and colleague, Mason Sallet, the Director of Talent at Dynasty Financial Partners. Mason, happy Friday. How are you? I'm doing great, Austin. Happy Friday, and thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to spending the hour with you and... uh, talking about talent. Great. Now, uh, most of the listeners know uh, that you know we reveal some of our secrets and oftentimes, as you would imagine, we do some pre-interview conversation around the types of questions that we're going to ask. And that's no different for today's episode. Mason and I obviously spent a lot of time together in the past, just um, personally and professionally, and also prior to this getting ready. And as I was going through that, we have some really cool questions that we're going to talk about. Before that, I have a couple quick stories that I want to share um, that will help to give some some context. Story number one is around 15 years ago, um, Mason and I met in the corporate dining room at 388 Greenwich when we were both working at City for breakfast. So our, our first meeting in person happened almost 15 years ago. And as you can imagine, over the course of 15 years, you've got ups and downs. We've been able to to get close to each other, both personally and professionally. So it's been a, it's a really good journey. I remember, Mason, um, well, let me ask you the question. Do you remember what you were eating 15 years ago in the 388 Greenwich Street corporate dining room at Citigroup when we met the first time? Well, I can't remember sometimes if I brush my teeth or if I've eaten <laughs> breakfast, but I think I remember that I was having cold oatmeal with raisins. Yes, yes, <laughs> oatmeal with raisins. And you did not take your suit jacket off. You wore your suit jacket and tie, and you ate uh, the cold oatmeal uh, with raisins. So <laughs> that, that, was, that, that was that was the training that I got at Norton Taylor, which I'll talk about <laughs> my first job. Where you were never allowed to take your coat off. <laughs> <laughs> and the second the second story for context of, about how long we've known each other and all the the fun times we've had together is um my very first professional trip um while working in financial services was with Mason we uh, we journeyed to the west coast and uh, one of our stops uh was in uh Hollywood Los Angeles and we were in a cab and we were driving uh pretty close to uh the Avenue of the Stars and uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater. And there was this individual that was driving a uh, a vintage antique car. I think it was a, a Porsche or, or something similar, but it was a really nice car. And apparently the person in front of him cut him off. And so this individual pulls off onto the sidewalk, back into the road, <laughs> jams on his brakes. The car behind him that had cut him off initially kind of tapped him. The guy got out of the, the vintage car, looked at his car, says, no brake, no bump, no brake, no bump, got back in. And you turned and looked at me like, this is not a safe place. <laughs> Do you remember that? Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the craziest things I've seen uh, in my life. So, um. You have spent almost 30 years in the financial service industry. I would love for you to share uh, with the listeners a little bit about your journey and how you're able to utilize all of that knowledge and experience that you've gained in your current position today. My, my pleasure. It's, uh, it's crazy to think that I have more than 30 years of experience. I, uh, 
graduated from college in 1986. Uh, I didn't go anywhere fancy. I went to State University of New York at Binghamton. Uh, I was a history major. And the reason I was a history major is because classes met Tuesdays and Thursdays in the afternoon. Uh, and that provided for a lot of opportunity to do other things. Um, and uh, yeah, I worked uh, my first job, as I mentioned before, I came out of school and I worked at Lord & Taylor. Picked that job. Uh, for those of you that may not know Lord & Taylor, I think they just went out of business. But uh, it's a retail store that was in midtown Manhattan on 39th and 5th. And I picked that job because it paid the most amount of money coming out of school. Uh, what I learned, um, and I'll just sort of repeat this several times, is you know even with 30 years of ex work experience, you know I'm always learning and I'm and I'm always still making mistakes. Hopefully, learning from them. Um, but one of the things I realized very early in life, and maybe we'll talk about this later, is you know about work-life balance. And what I what I saw at Lord and Taylor, uh, even within the first three or four months, is that none of the senior people were married, and uh, uh, that's not the life that I wanted, even as a 21-year-old. Um, so I think that was, again, part of my initial learning. <clears throat> I then went uh, to work for Morgan Guarantee Trust, um, which was at 30 West Broadway. Uh, fortunately, it was one of the buildings that was destroyed on 9-11. Uh, worked there as a clerk. Uh, didn't know anything about banking when I first got there. I I'll tell a funny story. Uh, I always tell this story. So when I went to interview for this job, and I had gotten the job through looking at the Sunday papers, and for those of you that are over probably 45, you know that the way you used to look for jobs is on Sunday, the New York Times, you would circle the, the jobs and then you would call up. There was no internet. Uh, so I got this interview. I went for the interview. A woman gave me her card, uh, and, and I looked at it, and it said, Assistant Secretary. Mm. And I walked out thinking to myself, Boy, they have this is some organization. They have assistance to the secretary. <laughs> not, like knowing that that a, the, not knowing like that that was a not knowing that that was a corporate assistant. title. Yeah. I didn't right. I was so <laughs> clueless about and so I always wonder how I got into financial services, but that was my for, first foray. Uh had a great experience there and then realized that I wanted to do my MBA. I actually uh, gotten in, got into a couple of schools after applying, deferred for a year, met my wife, Lauren, my, my better half of uh, 30 plus years now we're married, and uh, decided to go to NYU, which again, uh, I'm old enough that the school wasn't called Stern back then, it was just NYU. Leonard Stern, who gave $30 million uh, in, in the interim, uh, had the school named after him. So I graduated from NYU Stern in 1990. Uh, which was a very, very bad time, uh, one of the worst recessions that we've had in this country. Um, and uh, it was March. I, I was engaged uh, to Lauren. We were getting married in September. We had 250 people coming to the wedding. And by March, I still didn't have a job. So I was imagining in my head, how am I going to tell all these people, what does your husband do? Oh, he doesn't have a job. Uh, but I was very fortunate to, to get one job offer. Uh, which was from Citibank in their management associate training program. And uh, I spent 17 years at Citi uh, after graduating uh, from NYU. And I think because that they were the only firm that offered a job, I was very loyal. And I, I, I stayed, I had an incredible career at Citi. I was able to travel the world, meet tr you know tremendous people, uh, have a lot of different roles, which I, I can certainly touch upon. Um, and that's where I met uh, you, Austin, uh, which was a yep. true blessing. And and I worked. We worked for Cheryl Penning, our CEO, uh, who was running the wealth business there at Smith Barney. I spent the first 15 years of the of that 17 years on the retail side of the bank, retail branch manager, doing MBA recruiting. And then the last two years, I went over, as uh, Cheryl said, to the dark side, uh, and was on the brokerage side of the business, where we worked at a 388 Greenwich and then 787 Seventh Avenue. So, um, so, so Citibank was 17 years. Uh, I then uh, went on to a very unique opportunity to run the international private bank business at HSBC for five years. Uh, that allowed uh, me to work with non-U.S. clients. Uh, we had uh, 55 people and about $14 billion of assets there. Uh, and then after that, I went to um, TD Bank, uh, which was in that time really is still as a retail bank, but they were building out their wealth business in New York City. Um, and so I did that for about uh, almost two years. Uh, then uh, actually Cheryl and uh, Todd Thompson, 
were nice enough to introduce me to an opportunity at Bank Lumi, an Israeli bank, uh, which was looking for the person to run their domestic private bank business. So I went there for three years, and uh, but I had always kept in touch with, with Cheryl and with Austin and a couple other people at Dynasty. And when the timing was right, uh, and the opportunity was there, uh, I came on board and I've, I'm coming up. I know Austin is probably hard to believe to four years in May. Um, and I've had this an incredible career. I've been very fortunate, but what I really value the most are the people that I've met in my life, uh, because jobs come and go, uh, but people don't. And, uh, that's something that, uh, I coach and mentor a lot of people. And I talk about, um, you know, one of the things about me is I, I'm not the smartest guy. You know, I was a history major, um, and I'm really not. Uh, I, I, when I say that to people, I'm not looking for compliments. What I've done really well is I've really built, I think, built great uh, relationships and kept great relationships in the industry. And I've been fortunate that because of those relationships, every role that I've had, and I haven't had that many in 35 years of working, have come from people that I either worked with or knew from uh, from prior roles. Um, and I would say, you know, one of the things that I tell young people, and I, I love to, to coach and to mentor, um, and, and now in this part of my career as a chief talent officer, I think a major part of what I get to do is to do that, to coach, mentor, assess talent. Uh, and I just want to get back. Uh, because I've been very fortunate to people that have given to me in their careers. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I will tell, you know, people coming out of school, because they they're oftentimes very stressed, uh, or even people that are early in their careers, I, I usually give them a couple of um, things to think about. One is, uh, you know, work hard, build skills, respect people, be a great listener, don't be afraid to make mistakes, but as I said before, you should learn from them, even if, if, if it's painful. Add value in every situation. Always be learning. And I think most importantly, and, and for me, is that you need to be empathetic and vulnerable because this will naturally lead to what I think is the most important factor is personal happiness and career success when you build these strong and enduring relationships. And, a, you know, a quick example, uh, one of the roles I had early in my career coming up on 25 years is I was an MBA recruiter for Citibank for four years. I hired uh, all the MBAs for Citibank's businesses globally in Asia, Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. Yep. Now, that skill in my current role, uh, I use it a lot. And uh, so when I, when I speak with, with young people or people early in their career, I tell them, build skills. You never know when you're going to use those skills. But sometime, at some point in your career, it might be the difference between getting a job and not. Um, and the other thing is, I've been very fortunate to manage people for more than 30 years. My, my first real management role, I was a branch manager for Citibank branch uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, 30 years ago when I was 26. And I managed a team of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I can tell you, I made a lot of mistakes but I learned a lot and I learned about myself. Um, and when the opportunity came along for a dynasty, uh, it was very clear why I wanted to be a dynasty. Um, first of all, I knew Cheryl and Austin and a bunch of other people that had, we had all worked together. And at this stage in my career, I wanted to be involved in, in building something. And, and I wanted to work with friends and former colleagues. And I wanted to, I wanted to own something. And equity was very important to me, and, and Dynasty really promotes that. It's a, it's a, a great part of being a part of Dynasty, and it's also a very, very unique environment. So um, that's sort of my journey. Um, I've, uh, as I said, I've had very, very fortunate to meet great people and to have, to have had great friends and mentors, and you know, I, would, I would hope that for anybody else who's in the industry and who's out there working. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a... Thank you for a very in-depth um, analysis and look back at, at your career. Some of the things that you said that I want to unpack a little bit, um, particularly the comment around the guidance that you give to younger employees around building skills. And I've talked about this in, in previous podcasts around this concept of loyalty and also perhaps a, a new way 
um, in which employees, regardless of their age, and companies have changed. Because to your point, you spent 16, 17 years at City. I think probably your parents and my parents would have spent their entire careers at one company because there was a sense of loyalty both from an employer and an employee. And that shifted a little bit today. It's moving from company to company when you have an opportunity to make more money because based on most of the schemas within these companies, you know, that's the way in which you're going to be able to, to have a higher trajectory to a greater amount of income. With that said, though, if you're constantly making that move, my argument has always been you don't really have an opportunity to build tangible, strong skills that can be utilized over a longer period of time. And so I'm interested just in your view on, let's call it the new trajectory for individuals work entering into the workforce. And, you know, what is the right time to make a move or what are the things that people and companies should be looking for in order to build skills that can be utilized no matter where they go? Yeah, I think, look, the reality is that uh, the average person coming out of school takes four jobs in seven years. Um, you know, part of it is just the culture we live in. As you said, people used to work at IBM or the post office or some other company for 30, 40 years, and that was their career. Uh, right. But there was a change 25, 30 years ago. I remember because I was at Citibank, and they just, you know, we used to have a pension, and then there wasn't a pension. I mean, you had to do it on your own. And that was sort of the beginning of who, who's loyal to whom. Um, it, you know, it, it's a problem. Attrition is, is a huge cost. Um, you know, I think uh, we, we need to be looking to nurture people, give them what they need in order to be able to grow. Professional development has to be an important part of, uh, of any organization. Um, and, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, every organization I've worked in has had attrition, and I've been part of doing those exit interviews. And what you hear from people sometimes when they say they're leaving is that we're leave I'm leaving because I got, I got a job for more money. Sure. But when you really un unpack it, Austin, and, and you know this because we've talked about it, it's not the money. Because money is fleeting. Money doesn't create happiness. Uh, people leave because they're not appreciated. Uh, they don't like or respect their manager. Uh, they don't feel like they have growth opportunities. So organizations that are successful need to focus on ensuring that there are opportunities for people to develop and learn, uh, that they can be working for managers that have been trained uh, in order. And, and I, I can go into, at some point, we, we can talk about a, a webcast that I listened to, which was called uh, Diminishers versus Multipliers. Um, but... Um, there is an issue, and I think you know organizations that can look at people and figure out what their competence and what their uh, uh, opportunity to grow it will allow us to look at potential also. And I think it's not just what people are doing, but where they where they may be able to move in the organization. Um, and a lot of organizations, and something I was trained in many many years ago at Citibank, is this nine box concept, which measures the cross section between performance and potential. Citibank, I was very fortunate in 1994, they, they were rolling out this nine box process as a talent management tool. And um, some of us were, were invited to, to go to Singapore where they were training people globally for this process. And I know that they still use it and many organizations do use this nine box. Uh, it just has to be done in the right way um, because the goal is to look at bench strength and developing the talent and looking at who really has that ability to develop and take on larger roles as, as organizations grow. Right. I agree with, with many of the comments that you make. And I'd like to also come back and stress one underlying theme, which is let's table the concept that individuals are in fact leaving for other reasons besides money, like when you dig down into it. I still feel very strongly that there is a philosophy within perhaps a, a different generation whereby conceptually looking for a job that pays you more money is a motivation. Let's just say 
perhaps accept that as a truth. Sure. And my my argument, or not even the argument, my my thought on that is, and this is the way that I've looked at my career. I never really wanted to be in a not really. I never wanted to be in a position where I was so far um, out of my league that showing up to work every day was just extreme stress. And, and what I mean by that specifically is, if you don't allow yourself as an employee, young, old, forget about that vernacular, just as an employee to develop the skills you need to be successful in your current role, you're going to have challenges. Now, I'm all for stretch roles. I don't want anyone listening to think that one should just settle for where they're at. I'm a firm believer every single day that we should try to get incrementally better in all aspects of our life. I just believe that that mentality of constantly seeking a higher paying job at some point, you're going to get to your cap if you don't develop your experience. And when you're at that cap, you're going to live a very stressful life because you're in a job that you probably didn't deserve, but somehow you found based on your strategy to make more money. So that may be a controversial view, but I want to, for you, you know, to give a little bit of your view on how important it really is for employees to take time to develop in their role that they're at versus instantaneously thinking about the next step. Or you can say, Austin, I disagree. I think you should always be thinking about the next step. I mean, how do you think about that particular philosophy? I agree with you 100%, Austin, on that. And and it's something that I've discussed a lot and I've actually lectured on, uh, you know, for business school students. Uh, I used to go and speak to NYU. Um, you know, and I think there's this concept of stretch roles. And I think let's, let's talk about uh, just a normal role that you're in which allows right. you, as you said, to, to come in and to continue to develop and build skills. And, you know, I, I, the idea of, I think you've mentioned before, deep practice, really getting good and, and proficient in becoming subject matter expert. But, right. um, but in order to grow, uh, you have to stretch. Um, and in order to stretch, there has to be a, a risk of failure in that role, or it's not a stretch right. role. And I usually recommend when I'm speaking to people or coaching and they ask my thoughts that you should alternate. It shouldn't be what you had mentioned, the scenario where it's constant stretch, constant stretch, constant stretch. What that leads to, as you said, is tremendous stress. And then there's this whole concept that, you know, I think you've heard of the Peter principle, which is promoting people to the highest level of their incompetence. Um, and, and organizations, you know, that's, that's, that's a well-known concept. We talked about it, uh, when I was in business school and, and the reality is uh, I've seen organizations that have failed in taking people and promoting them just because they were really good at what they were doing. For example, at Citibank, they had a very strong trader, uh, equity trader. Uh, he was the best every year he made, you know, was successful in, in achieving, and blowing away his numbers in terms of trading. And then they took him and they made him the head of all the traders. Now, very different skill set, you know, for being uh, uh, an individual contributor to a manager, a people manager. And this person didn't want to deal with all the things having to do with being a manager. He had never been trained. So he's very, very unsuccessful in that role. And I think organizations sometimes forget that to, when you're an individual contributor, it's a very different set of skills uh, than to be a manager. Uh, and sometimes people who are individual contributors just don't have the innate skills uh, to be a good manager. Uh, and so we, I think organizations have to focus on that. So going back, I do think it's important to engage, develop, uh, stretch, nurture, all you want to say on talent. And I think they should have opportunities to have these stretch roles uh, periodically. And th this nine box that I mentioned uh, allows and looks for those, um, you know, that talent that has the ability to either do a one or a two turn stretch roll uh, at some point in their career. And that provides for many multi-year of looking at bench strength and development. Um, so yes, I agree with you. You just mentioned a key catchphrase. I mean, it's part of your title around talent. And there's a great book entitled The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. So if you're listening to this, you should definitely check it out if you haven't read that book. And in his work, he talks about three ways 
that individuals can unlock their own gifts. The first way is through deep practice, which you mentioned about a minute or two ago. The second is through ignition, and ignition um, more specifically defined is motivation. And the third is through master coaching, so identifying mentors that can help to uh, further perpetuate talent. My question for you is, you know, one, at Dynasty and candidly other companies, how should leaders be thinking about unlocking their employees' natural talents? And then secondarily, you know, in your practice, how do those three elements that I just talked about fit into uh, helping to unlock uh, employees' natural talents? And are those things that you do currently or have thought about doing with, with employees at Dynasty? Well, yes, I, I agree that those those three, I have not read uh, the book, but I, I certainly uh, will. I think it, uh, in my role, it's important to constantly be on the, the, the leading and cutting edge because there's so much more that we can be learning about ourselves and about our teams. Um, so, yeah, I, I would just say, uh, like you, I'm always uh, listening to webinars and, uh, and, and, and reading and Literally two weeks ago, uh, I was fortunate to be invited to a Franklin Covey uh, webinar, uh, you know, which was called Lead Like a Multiplier. And uh, so I took the, the hour or so to, to listen in. And I think this ties very closely, Austin, to the deep practice ignition and master coaching. And this was uh, with a woman named Liz Wiseman, who's one of the sort of leading uh, leadership experts uh, in the industry, you know, in the U.S., uh, she's written several books, and the book that she wrote was um, Multipliers. You know, how the best leaders make everyone book. make everyone smart. Really good book. Right. Yeah. They changed it to how the best leaders ignite everyone's intelligence, which is interesting because it's one of the words that you use, ignite. Sure. And um, what she said, and I'll, I'll try to remember exactly, but but basically it was. Good leaders are usually smart, right? You know, we've all had people who are managers that are very good, but maybe not be great managers. But the great leaders are smart, and they also enable the the smarts, the true genius uh, of those people that they lead. You know, th they will get people to give more than they ever thought they could give of themselves. And she talks about the difference between a diminisher as a manager and a multiplier. The diminisher basically takes all the energy out of the room, yep. shuts down the brain power of the team, um, and drains intelligence. Whereas, as I remember, the multiplier is the leader who just makes you feel smarter. It's just the minute you're around the person, they're inspiring, your light bulbs are going off, they're amplifying your intelligence. Um, the interesting thing, which comes out of the, uh, out of the discussion, is you can actually learn to get good at being a multiplier. Um, it's something that was new for me because in my mind, I always thought you either had that management skill or you didn't. Right? You, you could get a little better at it, but you either had the empathy, the ability to be a good listener, real interest to develop and coach and mentor people, or you, you didn't. And I'm also a numbers person. So the, the research that she did said that the miniatures they shut people down, they create stressful environments, they micromanage, and they make all the decisions, which doesn't allow for that person to other team members to make them. They get less than 50%. I think it was 48% of the capabilities. Whereas a multiplier, and you can't get more than 100%, get 95%. And, and again, the, these light bulbs go off in the in the room when someone walks in. Uh, they use all the intelligence of the people. They really know their teams. They ask great questions. They really look at people and say, what does this person have and how am I going to leverage that in my organization? And people love working for them. Right. All of us probably have had managers we say we love to work with. And again, they get many things out of these people that they never thought they'd be able to do. What do you think? And then there were some examples. Yeah, real quick. Yeah. What do you think the principle that isn't spoken yet so important to a multiplier? And this is a leading question because – you know, I have my own point of view, but I'll share real quickly something that I learn on a regular basis and why it's relevant to the point that I just tried to make so inarticulately. My wife, from time to time, I'll say something, my wife, Sarah, and she'll say, you know, Austin, this isn't about you. And it's such a good reminder to me because my ego oftentimes takes over and I'm very excited about something. 
but the only framework that I'm looking through uh, is my own. And I believe the unsaid aspect of a leader that embodies what you just mentioned, making people feel better about themselves, unlocking their talent, making them feel inspired, not sucking the air out of a room, but adding a whole new atmosphere to the room simply by their behavior is they truly not only realize, but embody the fact that it's not just about them, that their role as a manager for all intents and purposes, is to bring up each person that's under their purview. And therefore, it has to be a very self-sacrificing position, which is really, really hard, especially if you take the example that you just used a few minutes ago around this extremely talented trader who more than likely had to build up all these individual skills in order to get really good at what he or she did and then have to understand it's no longer about you individually. It's about how do you make the other people on your team great. What do you think about that? I could not agree more. Um, you know, in, in this part of my career, being my uh, 56 years old, you know, I've gotten to the point where every day I come into the office, all I want to do is to support people for no other reason and to be in support of their growth and the development. Um, I think it's the role that I was actually born to play, uh, even though I've had many, many other roles, but usually, you know, management role where I was managing teams. Um, but the pieces where I, that I enjoyed the most and where I felt that I deeply was able to provide value was to be in support of people strictly to be in, for the sake of being in support with no other agenda. So um, I think Dynasty provides a great opportunity with all the new people that we've hired uh, for me to be involved in their process and to really be uh, committed to each of these people's development and their success. Um, I think it's, uh, it, you know, again, I, I feel that strongly. I, I feel that the role that I'm in is a role that I was born and, and the purpose why I was put on this earth is to be in that role. Um, and it's the role that... Uh, that really gets me going every day uh, to be able to to be able to be that person that no longer focuses on myself. You know, I'm no longer thinking, oh, I want to be the CEO or I need to make this amount of money. I just want to be providing value and to be in support of, of people's development and growth. And uh, the days that I spend most of my time doing that are the, the greatest value and the happiest days that I have. Good. We're going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, we'll say that, you know, there's a theory in some schools of management around this concept of grading employees. So you've got your A players, you want to give them as many resources as you can um, and room to grow so they can continue to excel. You've got your B players and you need to coach them in order hopefully to move them up into the A category or you know, be satisfied with the fact that they'll likely fit in the machine as role players. And then you've got your C players, you know, and as a manager, you better coach them up or coach them up. Two questions. The first is one, what is your feeling on that system? And second, you know, in any company, should there be a natural rotation of talent? Well, I'll, I'll start off. I think it's an interesting question. And, um, you it's know, a toughie. The, it's a toughie. It, it, it's, it's a toughie. Um, so I, I, there's a quote or a, a phrase or a saying, I'm sure you've heard of it. Many people have heard of it. It's like a students work for B students at companies founded by C students. Right. <laughs> right. I'm sure people have heard that before. And, 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 and maybe there's some truth to it and maybe there's some humor to it. Um, but you know, I think I'm going to go back to this nine box because there's a very big difference between someone's performance and their potential. And I think organizations, and it doesn't have to be the nine box, but it can be some type of talent tool that looks at who are going to be your top 10 or top five people that can move on to new, new roles. I mean, one of the things about coming to Dynasty for me, in addition to being in this role that I knew was an organization that was growing so much more rapidly and was in a space that was growing so much more rapidly than any of the other places I had been. I basically worked for big 
bureaucratic, hierarchical banks my whole career. Citibank, HSBC, TD Bank, Morgan Guarantee Trust. I mean, the, the, the most bureaucratic organizations. So it was really a breath of fresh air to come into an organization that was still in a very significant growth trajectory. Um, and, and for me, it's, uh, it, it has been very refreshing to be in a place where we can sort of do things and not every, it doesn't have to be approved by 20 people. Um, the idea of grading, I think, I think you constantly need to be looking at talent um, and, and really understanding uh, why people are the way they are, you know, what's their background, what's their situation. Um, look, you're going to definitely, you're not going to have all A players. That wouldn't be, I think, uh, a very successful uh, organization. But there are definitely going to be people who are, and I don't know if it's, I would say, your top talent or your highest potential. I mean, those, the word high potential is, is can be a double-edged sword. Right. Because sometimes when you tell people they're high potential, uh, then they, they're sometimes not willing to do the things they need to do to, to continue to grow because they've been sort of marked. Um, but, you know, I would say it's, I, I don't like saying A or B or C. Uh, I think you're looking at people who, and, and by the way, not everybody wants to be in a role where they're constantly growing and developing. Some people are very happy to be the subject matter experts and organizations need those people, no matter what the size they are. I think where I would focus on Austin is there are people that for whatever reason are, are maybe not. Uh, achieving their full potential and organizations and managers need to, if they've made the, the right decision to hire that person, to give them the right tools and time to develop uh, as they're growing in the organization. And at some point, like with, you know, sometimes uh, with clients, and some clients are going to grow differently than others. Uh, but you know that without uh, clients, you don't have a business. And without the right talent, no, no matter how great your uh, vision or mission statements are, you're not going to be able to execute and support your clients. So I think it's important to, to look at those people and focus, you know, the ones that are not doing well and just not going to fit the culture, they need to move out quickly. And, and I would say uh, sometimes you got to make, if you make mistakes, you got to deal with them as quickly as possible, especially from a staffing uh, standpoint, because People who are who don't fit the culture can be very costly to the organization. And when you hire the wrong person, and I think that's why we spend a lot of time at Dynasty making sure that we're hiring people that are going to fit our culture. Uh, we, we do specific cultural interviews uh, because if you hire someone who doesn't fit the culture, it can be very detrimental uh, to the organization and not just from their function, but other parts. So when you look at those people that are sort of on the fence, that have, you believe have the potential that for some reason are just not performing, that's, that's the group that I would focus a lot of attention on. Because yeah. at some point you have to decide either they're going to make it or they're not going to make it. But you want to be able to say to yourself, we spent time hiring this person and we want to give them a chance to be successful. We want to give them the tools. We want to go above and beyond whatever coaching they need. Um, and then if it's not working, hopefully they'll realize also it's not working. And then you have, uh, you have non-regret uh, attrition, right? That there's a, there's this difference between regret and non-regret, and you you want to limit your regret attrition to as little as possible. Because those people you really don't want to leave the organization. Right. And I think that concept that you talked about, specifically around employees that just don't fit. So you know, let's again using the the concept of tabling it. Let's table that for a second, and then let's think about the ones that need a little bit more guidance that need a little bit more motivation in order to move forward. And, you know, you talked about the motivator or the detractor. I think inherently within, forget about the motivator detractor, think about the different ways in which people are motivated and there's not a one size fits all um, philosophy. And so I think oftentimes there's that, idea of the carrot versus the stick and good managers know how to use that. And then there's also like a contrary point of view where there is no element in which a stick is even relevant because, you know, that's just not the way we do things anymore. Talk to me a little bit about how managers should think about the philosophy behind motivation 
and how to identify and understand the unique characteristics of your employees and how to motivate them to do better? And how much time should managers be spending on thinking about how to customize their approach to individuals in order to get the best out of them? So, so I would say that good managers will be spending a lot more time on that, on that thought process and that um, way of interacting with their team versus managers that are probably not as successful. Um, there was uh, something that in three, three of the places I worked, we, we did, I'm a big believer in these uh, Myers-Briggs, um, Colvey assessment, uh, sure. the, the one that I like the best, um, actually, is the DISC training, which um, is typically oriented for sales organizations, but um, it's something that we did in, in various organizations that helped you, to, uh, as, especially as a manager, to understand where each one of your team fit within this, this structure. And I don't remember the exact uh, names for each of the, the DISC, but, but basically... Uh, as we would do it at offsites, uh, and then you would pre-fill this information, you would get this assessment back, and you would discuss it, and you would have somebody, it's actually something I'd like to do and get licensed to be able to do it, even potentially uh, for our clients, but certainly internally to the organization. You know, it's sort of like a 360 uh, uh, feedback, but it's more about how you interact and how you are as a person, how you look at the world, you know, the people who are the D's and I's tend to be managers and S and C people tend to be subject matter experts. But what it allowed organizations and certainly managers to do is to understand how to interact potentially differently with each of the people on their team. And then right. concurrently and as a corollary, how to interact differently with clients. So, so for example, the person who's the D uh, you know, is someone who really only wants the bottom line, right? They just want the information. They just want the numbers. Um, I'm not a D. I'm personally an I, right? I'm the person that wants to talk about family, what I did for the weekend, when I meet somebody before getting to the numbers. Now, I've had managers who are Ds, and it took me a while before I even did the disc to understand that, uh, or I, uh, Took me a while, probably too long earlier in my career, to realize that they didn't really care what I did on the weekend or what was going on with my family or what happened in the in the sports game because that's my way of connecting with people. Um, right. And so I would interact not that well sometimes, and it would take me a while to figure out, hey, maybe I should just go in and tell them what the bottom line, what our numbers, what we were successful in doing, uh, and vice versa. If you have a client that's an I or an S and just wants to hear all the information or a C, uh, you know, in, in that disc. And that person wants all the information before they're going to make a decision. Uh, you can't just go in and say, what's the bottom line? Uh, and and right. especially if you're also working with clients, uh, you have to understand. And I think that tool allows you to, uh, to give you a better perspective on how to have a much more productive interaction conversation and also how to manage your team, uh, because you'll you'll know what's important to each of those people. And I think the more time that you spend as a manager, really getting to know your team professionally and personally. I mean, for me, I, I talked a lot in the beginning about being empathetic and being vulnerable. I can tell you that it was probably 10, 15 years ago, I was in one of these trainings for the DISC. Um, and uh, when when I we got to talking about what each of the different pieces were the D and the I, the S and the C. Um, and I, I, I was on the I team and we talked about what was important to be a, a, a good manager from an I perspective. And I said to be vulnerable. Now, remember this is, I say 15 years ago, there was a silence in the room. These are all senior managers. And there was like the air got sucked out of the room. And I said, vulnerability is not a weakness. It allows you to create enduring strong relationships right thank god the facilitator agreed with me um but i'm I've, I've used that because a it's a it's a natural skill for me and it's something that i really believe in to build those relationships um and i think sometimes when you have that ability to be empathetic and vulnerable even when something's not working 100 percent, you get a little bit more freedom uh to, for 
to have that conversation in a different way with somebody than if you don't have that relationship. For sure. Yeah, we went to the tape. DISC stands for Dominance, Inducement, Submission, and Compliance. And yeah. the psychologist was William Moulton Marston, created in 1928. So Very famous guy. Year after Murderer's Row. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love... <laughs> yeah, I, I love the training and that, you know, that's that's something on my short list to, to get um, license in so that uh, that I might be able to roll it out for other people. Cool. We're going to move to a dynasty specific question. How has the move to Florida impacted the sourcing or recruitment of talent, number one? And then something that's more broad for all organizations. How has the pandemic influenced or wait? not how, has the pandemic influenced more professionals to move out of larger cities to uh, Florida for various reasons, weather, tax friendliness, et cetera? Well, you know, definitely more and more people, even before the pandemic, were moving to Florida. I I think the the number that I heard, uh, because we're involved in economic development committees, 100 new people a day are moving to Pinellas County, which includes St. Pete and Clearwater and a couple other places. And that I think Pinellas County has a million people. So that's a lot of new people moving every year. Um, When we looked uh, as an organization at the various places and we looked at nine different cities around the country, Nashville, Charlotte, Lexington, Kentucky, Albany, and then East Coast of Florida, actually, which for me was where I wanted to live uh, because I I had lived back in Boca Raton for five years, 25 years ago, and we still had friends. But we realized very quickly that the St. Pete area was perfect for us. It had a lot of the pieces that we were looking for. Uh, it was a market that was growing, but still had a lot of potential. Uh, we, we had local universities like University of South Florida, Eckerd uh, College, Stetson, University of Tampa, the St. Pete College. Uh, and we knew that we'd be able to find great talent. And we have. We've just uh, coming up on our 40th hire in St. Pete. Uh, we're almost at 50 people there and probably have another 15 to 20 people by the end of the year. So we're, we're really filling up the space that we took on when we got there. So yes, um, it was very, it was a important part of the factor, the factors that we looked at when we made the decision to come to Florida was, was, uh, being able to locate and recruit talent. And this year we're going to have six, um, summer analysts, uh, which is our normal class. Last year we only had three and it was completely remote. We'll have six in person in St. Pete from around the country. Um, so we're very excited about uh, our move. And, and the reality is it's, uh, we've been able to hire great talent at lower cost and, and without the use of recruiters. So I think Florida is an area of growth. Uh, I think we were fortunate to get in two years ago in St. Pete, which has grown dramatically since that point and more and more organizations are moving down. So I feel like we, we are the beneficiary of uh, a lot of uh, first mover advantages having moved uh, when we did. Great. What is one piece of advice? This is a question that I ask uh, most of our guests. I just like the answer. It's always um, somewhat of a selfish um, selfish inquiry just because I like to, to keep these in my memory bank. But what, what's one piece of advice that you would uh, give your 20-something self? And why? Hmm. And the answer can't be practice more air banding. That can't be your. <laughs> I don't think it would have helped, Austin. <laughs> Before Mason answers that, let me just oh, give boy. all the listeners a little bit of yes, yes. So again, Mason, I have known each other for a long period of time. One of my we favorite love each other. We love each yes, other. Yes, yes, very much. One of my favorite things about Mason is from time to time he will. Come and share some some thoughts, oftentimes accompanied by photos or a short vignette. But he was very uh, excited uh, one day to share with me that he, at a point in time, I believe in his collegiate career, um, while he may not have been in um, varsity collegiate athletics, he was... <laughs> Uh, a, an award-winning airband guitar player. And for, for those of you that are listening and wondering what is airbanding is exactly what you think it would be, is you do not have an instrument, uh, but rather you play uh, said musical instrument simply with your arms making large motions exaggerated in different fashions. So um, Mason was an air, air guitar, airband specialist, and I bought him a hat one time that... Uh, Which I still have. Proud... 
It still has, still has, and proudly wore. So <laughs> what's one piece of advice other than practicing more airbending? Uh, one piece of advice. That's a hard one. I would say, if anyone who knows me knows that I'm a big worrier, I would say don't worry so much, right? Try to, try to find passion in what you're doing. You'll be happier and more successful in your roles. Find passion. Good. I like that. I like that. Family's important to you. Um, this will be our last kind of wrap-up question. How do you think employees should think about their work-life balance uh, as they navigate their career? And, you know, this doesn't have to be just for, you know, individuals that are married with children. This can be anyone in thinking about how relationships outside of the workplace, hobbies, interests fit into life. How, how, do, how should employees think about their work-life balance? Well, I think it, I mentioned it right when we started, right? My first job at Lord & Taylor, even as a 21-year-old, I realized that uh, many of these senior people had given their whole lives to the retail business. And that just wasn't something, even at 21, never even thinking what, if I would ever get married or not, uh, was, was something that just was not appealing to me. So I think it's very important that, uh, that employees and talent should think about their work-life balance uh, it, it should be something that they realize they're going to be points in time. Um, if they want to continue to move ahead and grow that they may, that might be out of balance. Right. Um, uh, and there are going to be times where you will have more control over that balance. Uh, you know, I think people coming out of school now, maybe think about the world a little bit differently that there are, uh, pieces of what we do that I know because I'm interviewing a lot of people coming out of school that have been a couple of years out of school. Uh, areas that 20 years ago, no one was asking me about, uh, but are more and more people, uh, no matter what level of experience uh, I hear. And one of the ones is around diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really very relevant. It's, it's not just to check the box as organizations sometimes do. It's something that we should be doing because A, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for business. And it's important to the people that we're hiring. Um, you know, I, I always say, or I've heard it said that diversity is, is being invited to the party and, and inclusion is choosing music. I, I think when I think about it, I actually like a better analogy, which is diversity is being invited to, into the house, whereas the inclusion piece is being asked to help to rearrange the furniture so that it fits you. And I think going back to your point, Austin, about how to develop and, and nurture talent, uh, I think organizations finally have realized how important it is to focus on diversity and inclusion. Um, sure. and, and it, and it takes, it's not something that happens overnight. Uh, you know, we have a very strong diversity and inclusion committee. Uh, we're active, uh, we're, we're constantly taking input and looking out into the world and, and realizing how we can support our team, the talent, the organization, uh, and maybe support our clients while doing that with some best practices. You know, diversity inclusion has to be mission critical. It has to be supported by, by senior management. Um, and I, I really believe that organizations that integrate and support this diversity inc uh, inclusion as a business priority are going to be much more successful. Again, not just because it's the right thing to do because it is, uh, but it's actually uh, a good business tool. Um, so I think, you know, that's part of work-life balance. We, you know, certainly as an organization, one of the reasons we chose uh, St. Pete, uh, aside from the fact that we were really being welcomed with open arms, is the opportunity to be involved in the community. Right. And that's an important discussion that I have with with candidates. Either they ask me what we're doing or they've seen what we've done. Um, so I think uh, it's very important to focus on, on, on this work-life balance and realize for yourself as an individual where you're able to push a little bit and maybe stretch and where you're not. Right. I mean, coming back to the the diversity inclusion conversation and i know that you're a huge proponent of it and a huge supporter um, and you lead a lot of the efforts within our committee here at dynasty it's even more fundamental let's think about the logic behind it if you're in a group of people in a company that all have the same background they have the same experience relatively they're of the same gender same skin color same religion, general values, general beliefs, 
there's probably not going to be much diversity in terms of thoughts and ideas. And so if you want to have a company 100%. that's innovative, you probably want to have people with different backgrounds, expertise, and ideas. Otherwise, you're just going to get the same thing over and over and over again. And you need to have different voices, right? You need to have different voices that can stretch the elasticity around beliefs for people. And if people don't get that, I'm sorry, they're just naive. They don't understand why. They just don't get it. I'll leave it at that. And so for me, it's making sure that it shouldn't have to be a defensible position. It shouldn't be like, these are the reasons why. It should just be logical. You should say, oh, yeah, I get it. That makes sense to me. I don't need to list off a whole host of reasons. Just very simple. The more diverse your company is, the more potential ideas, the faster you'll innovate. And then there's a period at the end of that sentence, and that's it. Agreed. Agreed. I, th- I think I think in, in the country we're, we're on a continuum, sure. but it's moving much. The trajectory is much steeper than it was even two years ago, and I'm very happy to see that. And I'm happy to see where Dynasty is, and I agree with you 100% on that point. I'm going to end with one um, one final thought um, because we touched on this briefly, but it, it's something that you know. I'm personally passionate about, and it's it's a little quirky, but that's okay because part of this is you know the opportunity that I have as the host to talk about quirky stuff. So I'm <laughs> going to do that. Um, we talked a little bit about three ways that people can unlock their gifts, and we talked about deep practice, ignition, which is motivation, and master coaching. That first concept about deep practice um, to me is one that's really, really critical because there are all these posters that are out there, you know, hard work beats talent, trust hard work, 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 do all these things. And up to an extent, I I embody and I believe in that concept. I believe that effort and intensity can outweigh certain other deficiencies. I mean, I truly believe that. However, This concept of deep practice is really important to me because as I've gotten older and as I've tried to be more um, introspective and thinking about uh, the ways in which I've had success and watch other people have had success, it's more about deliberate practice. Practicing a lot is important, but practicing a lot deliberately is more important. Let me be very specific about that. The night before a meeting... Literally in my head, I will be watching the movie of what is supposed to unfold the next day and think about ahead of time all of the potential rebuttals and or counterpoints that a party could make. And that was taught to me by a mentor who at a very early age when I was, when I was playing baseball would say, how was the game? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, how was the game? I was like, I don't know. We didn't play a game. Like, we're just practicing. He's like, did you play it in your mind? And so this person who, you know, did not graduate from college, um, you know, I wouldn't say is the most sophisticated individual, but some of the principles that this coach taught me, I still use today in business. And that thought of deep practice and seeing an encounter before it happens does a ton of things for me, but most the, the probably number one thing that it does for me is it releases the stress of the situation before because it's already been played out in my mind. And it usually, play, not usually, it always plays out in my mind in a positive outcome. Now, whether that materializes in practice 100% of the time, no. But it happens a lot more than it doesn't. And what it also does, most importantly, and now I'm repeating myself, is it removes a lot of the physiological angst or anxiety around the situation because I've already done it in my head. And so I know that doesn't have a ton to do with what we're talking about, but I think as managers and people that are listening to this around talent, perhaps that could be a small gift that you could give to them. Or perhaps if you're listening to think about is how often in whatever things that you do during the day that are a professional responsibility that ahead of time you are mentally preparing and practicing them 
so that you try to get the outcome that you want. What do you think about that? I love it. I think it's great. I'm going to definitely do that. Cool. I mean, I've done certain things like that. I, I try to have this vision of something positive. Uh, I also, having done some work outside in an organization uh, where there was a contract, where we, you know, talking about how you're going to be in the world. Right. Um, so I think everyone uses what they need, but that's that's a very positive, well-known, uh, measured, and uh, tracked and researched, and it, and it works. So I think that's a great uh, a great uh, present to everybody. Cool. I really appreciate your time, Mason. This was a very fun conversation. And, um, you know, you've been a great friend uh, to me for a long period of time. So thank you for that as well. My pleasure. I appreciate it. I feel the same way about you and um, looking forward to uh, doing more of these in the future. Thank you for listening to the Powering Independence podcast. And a special thank you to Mason. I really enjoyed our conversation. Please stay tuned for future episodes and remember, be safe and wear a mask.